It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. White foamy waves lap onto the gray and sandy shores of West Beach in Nome, Alaska. Dredges mark the horizon, separating the dark waters from the light blue skies. It's a remote city that's populated with tents and miners who've settled there in hopes of unearthing riches. But those who truly know the area are the Inupiat, the people who are indigenous to the land. As the mine workers scour the beach for gold and minerals, another search has been taking place over the last three years. The search for 33-year-old Florence Flo Okpialuk. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Flo was last seen leaving a miner's tent at 4 o'clock p.m. on August 30th, 2020, leaving behind her socks, shoes, and her jacket. Her family grew concerned when they were unable to reach her and filed a missing persons report at 6.15 p.m. the following day. Various agencies have been involved within the case, including the Nome Search and Rescue Team, the Alaska State Troopers, and the FBI. Still, no trace of flow has ever been found. Rachel Ventress is a community member who is raising awareness about Flo's case and demanding action from local authorities. She joins me now to outline the circumstances of Flo's disappearance and the state of the investigation. Flo Okpialuk, missing and assumed murdered since August 31st, 2020 in Nome, Alaska. Rachel, can you share with us the facts of Flo's disappearance on that day? So um, the last time that Florence was seen was at 4 p.m. on August 30th. As far as we can tell, um, there's some discrepancies in reporting on the case, but um, the timeline that I've been able to piece together is that it was August 30th was the last time she was seen. And she never returned home and she was never heard from after that, um, again, after that date. So she was seen on the beach outside of a gold miner's tent um, near the city of Nome and her jacket and shoes were left behind. And the following day, August 31st is when her family filed a missing persons report because they couldn't reach her. And so the Nome police department issued a missing persons report. And eventually after several days, uh, Nome search and rescue and other entities got involved, but there was no trace of flow ever found. So she, the, Nothing's been solved or found or discovered since then. And what information about her disappearance came about during the failed investigation that followed? So when Flo went missing, there were friends and community members who decided to organize a search because the official search and rescue did not get involved looking for her until later. And while the Nome Police Department issued an alert they have of their own accord stated that they are understaffed and they don't have a lot of resources to dedicate to things like this. Um, and so the women in Nome, uh, Friends of Flo and her family immediately organized searches and began doing systematic um, grid checking of the tundra and the area near Nome. And they were able to kind of piece together a timeline of what had happened. And they said that what they found was that on the day before she was last seen, so that would have been August 29th, she 
was in a bar where her sister Blair worked and there were several other people in the bar and Flo left with a gold miner um, around town who was known to live on in a shanty town on the beach. He was also known to be a drug dealer around town or at least purported to be one. And um, Flo's sister thinks this was the first time that Flo met this gold miner. Um, there was video footage that was later recovered of Flo leaving the bar with this man and several other people. So the people who are closest to Flo believe that this man is at least one who is primarily responsible for her death. So after Blair, her sister, couldn't get a hold of Flo, she filed a missing persons report. And then Blair and other people spent some time down on West Beach asking people who lived on the beach if they had seen Flo or if they'd heard anything. And one of the neighbors of this gold miner told the group that around 4 p.m. on the 30th, he heard Flo yelling this man's name. And then the neighbor saw the man take Flo on a four-wheeler up the beach. And he was the, the man was not seen again. He returned, the neighbor said, 10 hours later, angry and tired and hungry. And so when the group of women confronted this, this man about taking Flo somewhere, he denied taking her anywhere. But later there was security camera footage down near the the water port that showed him with her on his four-wheeler uh, driving down the beach and then returning without her. So, and then Flo's sister said that the man uh, gave her, gave Blair, the sister, Flo's shoes and jacket that were left behind when she disappeared, which has always been an important detail because why would anyone leave of their own volition without their shoes and jacket? So then... Um, the timeline is that um, one of Flo's best friends from a different community had the last known conversation with her on August 30th, shortly after midnight. And the the friend uh, told police and other people that, um, and I've, I've talked to her as well, that Flo said she was on the beach. Flo told her friend that there were people in the bushes and they were passing something around and it didn't look good, and Flo thought it might be drugs. But Flo was known to not ever do drugs. Like she she has family members who have who use drugs, and Flo herself struggled with um using with using alcohol, but she was known. Everyone who talked to her says that she never used drugs. She was very much against that. And so the women of Nome feel like her death is somehow drug related, but they're not exactly sure why or how that all ties together. Um, but after Flo was reported missing, the gold miner moved his camp aided by friends in town and his camp. But before that point had been stationary for a really long time. And he moved his tent just right after she went missing. So there were several different things that happened where there's been kind of hearsay and different rumors around town swirling around about what happened. There was a woman who told Flo's sister that people had a, had hired her to shovel something for drugs and she thought it had to do with Flo, but she couldn't elaborate or give details. Um, there was an anonymous woman who reported um, hearing a man in a cab saying that he had he and other people had murdered Flo, dismembered her and dumped her in water. There's been all sorts of rumors that have kind of swirled around town and people have been have taken these so seriously that the anonymous woman left town. She feared for her own life. Um, but there are there are names that keep coming up that are consistent that people say, oh, it was these people that were involved. So anyway, the, the, the women of Nome, they, they fundraised to bring up cadaver dogs to look for Nome or to look for flow in Nome. And I believe that they came up two times, but the one time the Nome police department allegedly gave the incorrect coordinates for the cadaver dogs. They were trying to look for um, flow by a pond, a body of water that, 
they found bare footprints, um, four-wheeler tracks, and then uh, man-sized shoe prints. And they thought that that looked like it could have been Flo since she didn't have her shoes. Um, and so, the, but the dogs never searched that area. Um, and another time they came up and didn't, didn't find anything. So on September 2nd, the gold miner allegedly gave Flo's cell phone to our local search and rescue. Um, and the man uh, apparently told search and rescue that he found the cell phone in the sand by his tent, but that area by his tent had been combed through. So many people had been there looking for signs of flow. And so they found it very suspicious that he had her phone and then that the search and rescue took jurisdiction to collect police evidence. And so given all of that wealth of information and you could, you know, circumstantial evidence and actual evidence, for example, her cell phone. Can you share mm-hmm. what the response by authorities has been and and so the, was to all this? Yeah. So the response has been really interesting. So the Nome Police Department has, since Flo disappeared, issued um, reports and requests for information, and they cite a Nome Police Department case file. They also, the uh, the FBI from Anchorage was brought up to do some work on the case and the state troopers were involved in some capacity. I've spoken to um, local police here, um, one who was still on the force when he, when Flo went missing and then other police officers who um, have come up since Flo went missing. And there's a lot of contradictory information. So uh, Flo's family was told for a long time, you know, oh, we're working the case. We're working the case. We can't tell you much because it's an open investigation. Um, And there just hasn't been there. There was a detective that was a lead detective that was assigned to the case, but he voluntarily left the police department after a few months of working Flo's case and no one else was assigned as lead investigator. So Flo's family, when they call and ask for updates, it feels to them like they're being put off or not given enough information. The last time that Flo's sister called the Nome police, the officer who answered didn't even know who Flo was, had seemed like he hadn't even heard of her name. And so I, um, I, I kind of facilitated a meeting with Flo's mom and the Nome uh, chief of police, the acting chief of police, who was not here when Flo disappeared, but has taken over since then. And then the city manager of Nome. And in that meeting, Flo's mom and I were told that the city of Nome does not have the case, does not have Flo's case, and that the FBI actually has it. And I asked in that meeting, I said, so all these times that Flo's family has called for an update on the case, should they have been directed to the FBI instead? And they kind of hemmed and hawed, like, yeah. And that never once happened. Never once did the police department say, oh, we don't have her case. It's in, it belongs to the FBI. And I asked about jurisdiction because the crime was not committed on federal lands, as far as we know, and the suspects are not indigenous or native um, suspects, which would facilitate um, FBI jurisdiction, according to my understanding. And in the meeting, they told me, well, they didn't take jurisdiction. We gave them the case. And so I said, well, can you take it back? Because it doesn't make sense that people who live 500 air miles away are working this case and the local police department isn't and doesn't have it at all. And I didn't really get a clear response on that. So um, our conclusion, what we believe is that within a few months after Flo went missing, absolutely no work or progress was made on this case. And in the meeting with the city manager and the chief of police, I asked if when the FBI came up here, if they had used known police department space to conduct interrogations and 
I was told, no, they didn't. And I was also told that the Nome Police Department didn't conduct interrogations. So what that means is like people were questioned and asked questions, but no suspects were ever brought in for a formal interrogation. And it sounds to me like after a few months, they just thought, you know what? I don't think this case is going to be solved or we don't have the resources to solve it or whatever it was that they thought. And they have not been working on it. So that's what we that's the conclusion that we that close family has thought for a long time and that I feel was confirmed in our in our meeting. It's so fascinating because oftentimes families and communities plead for FBI involvement or national level or federal, I should say, involvement um, so that there can be access to a heightened amount of resources and a certain caliber of experience that might be so helpful in cases that families are managing tragically. And here, you know, the ask is that it's kept local so that this, the strength of those relationships can be utilized and leveraged and so that the community can play such a more active role uh, formally because obviously that the community is what is playing the active role. Um, can, can you share a little bit about, is there a dynamic between the mining community and the indigenous community there in Nome in the area that uh, plays a part in this as well? I can speak to what I've heard and what I've gathered um, from living here is that, I mean, traditionally, historically, all of this land belonged to indigenous people. And there still are large swaths of land that are controlled or managed by tribal organizations and entities here. Um, some people who come to mine gold have leases on tribal land or from private individuals to be able to mine the land. But a lot of times it ends up being people come and, and kind of squat and, and, and use the resources here to mine. I don't know all of the logistics of, you know, do you have to have a permit to have a tent here or whatever, but I know that there is um, frustration in the community over exploiting the area and the national or the natural resources. But I also know that there are, ways to go about leasing land even and tribal entities will even give permission for that. So I think a lot of the feelings here come down to individuals and how they feel about mining or how they feel about the use of traditional lands. And it just kind of can vary from person to person. And then can you share um, what else do we need to know about the current state of the case? Okay, so there is a special investigator who has worked extensively in Alaska. Um, his name is um, Officer Haney, Matt Haney, and he worked for a long time down in Washington State. He worked the Green River murders and um, was instrumental in identifying the, uh, the the suspect in that in that case that eventually was proven to be the the perpetrator. Um, he's worked in Alaska for quite some time. And the most recent case that he solved was the murder of a woman out of the town of Homer. And he was actually hired by the Homer Police Department to come and work this case. And he spent two years working just the Duffy murder out of Homer. And eventually he did. He did identify a suspect and there was an arrest and there will be a trial that is um, coming forth. So um, Flo's family traveled down to Homer for a memorial for Duffy. And at that memorial, they met Officer Haney and asked him if he could do something to help them with, with Flo's case. And he said he would be willing to take a look if the Nome Police Department would ask him to and hire him. And so shortly after coming back from that, the, a family friend that had helped get Flo's family down for this memorial sent Haney's information to the police and maybe even entities of the city. I can't remember, but at least to the police. And no one ever reached out to Haney. So recently I've started agitating more vocally for the police to to hire Haney to work this case. It's 
her case is officially a cold case. It's been over three years since she went missing. And the Nome police have said on multiple occasions that they don't have the resources to work the case. And I don't see any evidence that the FBI is working the case. So that is what Flo's family would like is for Officer Haney to be hired. And in our last meeting with the city manager and the police chief, uh, we were um, Marie, Marie uh, Flo's mom, and I were told, yes, the city wants to see this solved. Money is not an obstacle. We will do everything that we can to to solve this case. And they told Officer Haney that they would bring him up um, in April to work the case. Now, we are hopeful, but skeptical of the follow through on that promise since it's taken very vocal, determined um, agitation for forward movement to be made um, in it. And, and and so we are hopeful that if we can keep Flo's story in the spotlight, if we can keep people aware of what's going on and, and provide pressure to the city and the police department to follow through with what they've promised, we're hopeful that we will be able to see um, somebody who could be committed to working this case actually come and dedicate time and resources to, to, to working it. Rachel, how can listeners help and how can they learn more and support? Okay, so what um, I've what I've started is I'm starting a basically a public media campaign. I have a petition um, that's been started to ask the city to bring up Matt Haney to work Flo's case. What we're asking people to do is to send an email to the city of no manager, like the city manager, and then the chief of police, just expressing support for hiring Matt Haney to come and work um, Flo's case. And there's also a petition that I've started that people can sign just to to say that they support the city doing this. And so I have those um, petitions and the emails on my my social media accounts on Instagram and, and Facebook. Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you for your advocacy. Thank you for all of the incredible effort that you are undergoing this monumental lift on behalf of your community and your friends and the Okpialuk family. Um, it's heartbreaking to know yeah. how many people um, feel voiceless, but not under our watch and not at this moment. So thank you for that. And I'm grateful that there are ways for our listeners to continue supporting and learning more. I'd like to close by centering Flo herself. And can you share a little bit about how the community is remembering her or mourning her or mourning her? Yeah. So I know there are people who are involved in searching for Flo from the beginning who regularly will post on social media um, as memories pop up and try to keep her her memory alive. Um, her Flo's daughter still lives here in Nome and she lives with Flo's mother and um, seeing her daughter around. I, I just, I went to, I went to Flo's Facebook just the other day and was like looking through pictures of like when her daughter was little and thinking about how, how she's growing up right now without her mom. And I know that people don't, family members and friends, they don't forget their loved ones, but sometimes it's harder for the public to keep that um, in mind. And I think that there are a lot of ways that people mourn very privately here, but I don't know. I'm not sure what else really to say about it other than that the process of remembering her is not really a widespread community process, but it's very individual and it's very personal to each person who knew her and loved her and, and care about her her case being solved. Everyone who who I spoke to about Flo mentioned how much she loved her daughter and what an amazing person she was and how much that they loved having her in their life. And so I, you know, I think that's important, you know, to remember that there's a little girl who's growing up without her mom and a mom who's never going to get to see her her daughter grow and 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 mature. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. 
Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Since her disappearance and presumed death, Lowe's family has kept her in their hearts. She leaves behind her loving mother and sisters. She also leaves behind the young daughter who those closest to Flo recognize the similarities she bears to her mother. I was joined by Flo's mother, Marie, and her sister, Alec, as they discuss the woman she was and the impact her disappearance has had on their family. I was joined by Flo's mother, Marie, and her sister, Alex, as they discuss the woman she was and the impact her disappearance has had on their family. There's a vastly disproportionate representation of Indigenous women among the murdered and missing in this country and especially in the state of Alaska. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you share your experience as family and as residents of Nome and Wales, what that is like and your thoughts on that? It's, It's really horrible. Like, you know, a lot of people just shrug that kind of thing off. And it's, you know, we've always had our voice taken away, you know, all the time. I mean, since like the beginning of when white people met Native people, we've always had our voice taken away. Can you share about Nome? share about the community and Um, what it's like there and how the community has been impacted by Flo's disappearance and how they've pitched in. The community of Nome has always been ready to help. And I mean, Flo's disappearance has always been a big thing to the community of Nome. I mean, you know, to like its residents and and things like that. They helped raise a lot of, of the money that we had raised. And is this a pattern there? Um, yes. Nome is, it's a small community. So, and, you know, everybody knows, you know, like the basketball team's families and stuff like that. And um, it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty close community. And Rachel, you've described a lot of your work pitching in. Can you describe as a community member what the search efforts have been like or perhaps this process? Yeah, so my son has gone to school with Flo's daughter since kindergarten. They're in the same class. And so when Flo went missing, I was watching um, social media posts by um, some of the other women who were involved. And I had five kids ages six and under at that time in 2020. And so I, <laughs> Alex is laughing at me. And so I was like, well, I can't go out and search, but her case really weighed heavily on my heart. And so I packed lunches for the searchers to take with them when they went out. Um, and something that um, Alex had mentioned and that several other searchers had said is that, you know, when uh, earlier there had been two white women who went missing and within 10 hours, like the police and search and rescue were out looking for them. But when Flo went missing, search and rescue would not join the official search uh, efforts. They wouldn't, they wouldn't go look for her for, um, Alex had said, until day six. And so that's why the women in Nome started their own searching. Um, and there was another man who was good. Um, he had experience. I can't remember his name. It's in my brochure, but he had experience, um, with search and rescue in a neighboring village. And so he helped guide the women into what to do. Do you remember his name? I put it in the flyer, but Dennis Davis, Dennis Davis from, um, Brevik, right? Shishmaref. Yep. And so he, he told them like how to do this searching, but it was really up to the the people here who were just, you know, people with day jobs and Flo's friends and family to begin the searching because the police wouldn't, or the, you know, search and rescue wouldn't join the official 
official search sheet. They also had issues. They struggled with things like they would call and say, oh, I found something. And the police would say, well, that's out of our jurisdiction. And yet they went tons of miles out of their jurisdiction to look for these other women who went missing. So just watching that and then talking to the people who are involved um, I'm not native, I'm not indigenous, but I have a daughter who is. And so when I think about flow, I think about my daughter. And as long as there are men and people in our community who think that you can kill or get rid of or silence a native woman without repercussions, it won't stop. And so it's it's my daughter that I care about. It's Flo's daughter that I care about. It's the people who are left here who are being told that their lives don't matter and that it, it, anything can be done without repercussions because that's the message right now that's been sent is that you can, you can do this and you can get away with it. So um, I went back in September to CrimeCon in Florida and I didn't want to go as just a consumer. I said, you know, I could bring information about Flo's case because I hadn't there were no other podcasts that I could find that had covered it. All the news coverage was very, very lacking in detail. And so that's when I started speaking to, I, I met with Blair. Um, I met with women who had participated in the searching. I started talking to Marie and trying to put together information that wasn't in the mainstream news that um, could hopefully spark interest and then put pressure on our police department and city here to take for their action and to actually do what needs to be done to solve this case. Can you share about Flo and who she was as a person and what she loved to do and what her passions were and what she was like? She had a lot of um, um, self-discipline and you couldn't win an argument with her no matter what. But, you know, she loved to, to play basketball. She loved to play volleyball. She was really into sports. She was the, um, the prom queen at her sport. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and she was really helpful without question or, or without expecting anything back. She, she, would, she helped people, you know. I remember one time she had... Or she lived here in Nome, and so there's not a lot, a lot of opportunity to go out and collect native food, you know, go hunting and stuff like that. So, so she had bought a bucket of um, Eskimo food, and it costed her two hundred and fifty dollars. And then when she opened it, it was like, you know, three fourths empty and old. And I was like, oh my gosh, Flo, you should bring it back and get your money back. And she was just like. Well, maybe they needed the money, and that's how she left it, you know, and that's the kind of person she was. Yeah. She sounds amazing. She, she was. I'm so sorry for, I'm so sorry for this and for what you've gone through and what you are going through. Um, Marie or Rachel, would you like to share any final thoughts about Flo or about these efforts to bring her home? When she was growing up, I was uh, by her own little girl. She's, but she spent time with her little brother, year old. Uh, they were a year apart, and they spent a lot a of time together. Just a year <clears throat> apart. His, his, his little, her little brother, I was expecting her to come home. When they were in school, yeah. and he wasn't in school yet. He'd always wait for her to come home after school, and then when he started school, he would he got out earlier than she did, and he would still always wait for her to come home. <laughs> they were always together, and they were always doing something together. And um, we did a lot of our family did a lot of subsistence when we were growing up, and by like five, we had our own. Us girls, we had our own ulus to cut, and she was a she was, and she had that self discipline very young. She wanted to learn and, and and help my mom. You know, like when we would, go, my mom would take all of us kids to school picking berries. She would just sit and pick for hours while all of us would play in the grass, and you know, 
she she was she had her um yeah she, she yeah she had that drive <laughs> yeah and she was very fond of her dot her daughter only daughter she has ever since she was maybe start walking she brings her to the beach mm. you know every weekend she brings her somewhere <laughs> her little daughter and she loves to be outdoors, you know, or walk the beach mm-hmm. or picking. How old is her daughter I now? I stayed with her for a year while my husband worked in no belt and lived up there. So we mm-hmm. lived separate, me and my husband. So I spend a lot of time with her because she, was, she was works and I take care of her little girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she always come home happy because the house is so clean and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how old is her daughter now? She's ten years old now. Ten. Yeah. What parts of Flo do you see in her? Does she have that same drive and determination? And she like her mom. A lot. She is like her mom. She is only 10 years old, and you cannot win an argument with her. <laughs> <laughs> She's patient with doing things, too. Yeah, she has low like self-discipline. Her. Yeah. She sounds amazing, too. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. Again, I'm, I'm so sorry uh, for everything. Um, I'm grateful for your time today. I'm grateful for your voices. Um, Would you like to share any final thoughts before we close? When I started, since I started searching or like researching Flo's case and compiling information, I started having this recurring dream that I was out on the tundra looking for her. And I, I saw a body on the tundra. And in my dream, I run over and I roll her she's laying face down and I roll her over and I see my daughter's face and um that's something that I really want people who hear this story to see in flow is that she's a person she's my sister she's your sister she's your daughter she's my daughter um I had someone when I was doing some research in town say something like very derogatory about Flo and um, because she had her own struggles and she had her own um, demons that she had to face. Um, And it doesn't matter. She deserves to be found. She deserves for justice to be served. Um, And she's a human being who deserves to have her case solved and who deserves to have the people who did this to her um, punished and taken and put away. So that's what I hope people see when they, when they talk about her, when they think about her, um, is who she was as a person. What I heard somebody say one time was, I mean, not long before she disappeared, she started, um, getting really bad into alcohol. And, um, what I heard somebody tell, say to me one one time because I am in early recovery from drugs and alcohol um somebody said to me okay there was a post about um somebody who had died um from an overdose and then somebody said well it you know well they were just junkies you know and somebody had commented everybody deserves long enough to to recover from drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. Of course, every human deserves to come home. Every soul deserves to be loved and know that they matter just as much as the one next to them. Habits don't matter. Everyone deserves to come home and everyone deserves the respect of being looked for and sought after. Um, We've started in the last or the, for the last two years, we've done a um, an MMIW walk. The first time we did it, we I mean, it was just me and Flo's daughter were walking and she she brought up the idea. And, I, and then I was like, hey, let's do it. I was like, OK, so I posted on no post that and my personal page that we were going to do 
a walk for Flo in, in a couple of hours where we would go from my mom's building down to Front Street and through through all the way through Front Street and then to the park. And um, so we made signs and a lot of people showed up. With, and even though it was just a, um, just a couple hour notice and it was a, you know, a spur of the moment thing. And then so... Um, this year it was more organized, but I wasn't there. And um, next year we would like to do one that is like really organized and and really speaks. And I'm hoping that um, to at the end of it I can get a spokesperson that has you know done a lot of searches or was really involved in the search too at the end of the walk to to speak up and say something to everybody. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The louder, the better. Thank you. Thank you all again for sharing your time. And um, I'm grateful for you. And like I said, I'll be here if you need anything. And otherwise, I'll look forward to hearing about closure in this case and um, reduction in those inequitable stats because every statistic is a person, is a human and a family and love and loss. And um, this needs to end. But I wish you you all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. 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 More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. Flo's disappearance is a devastating loss for the community of Nome, Alaska. But her case is representative of an alarming statistic. Four in five American Indian and Alaska Native women and girls will experience violence in their lifetime and are murdered at a rate three times higher than Caucasian women. Many Native-led organizations have been created in order to bring attention and justice to this jarring disparity. Charlene Ophook is the Executive Director of Data for Indigenous Justice, an Alaska Native-led nonprofit that collects data surrounding missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and relatives. She joins me now to explore these statistics and to provide calls to action to combat this crisis. What do you want listeners to know? What data is not readily available for the masses? What information out there is so vital and important to these voices that are underserved and yet people don't know it? Yeah, thank you so much for asking. You know, I just want to say first and foremost, I'm honored to be able to share on behalf of so many people who are not able to be here today and to share their own story and many silenced voices of families who have experienced injustice over, you know, long periods of time. And, you know, what information do we have that, you know, is really essential to this work is that we base our data and our database is really operates off of the truth of our people. And so what I mean by that and what that looks like in data, for example, is if there's a case, for example, that is listed as suicide, but there's a lot of other circumstances that the family and the community have talked about, and it really seems suspicious. um, In our database at Data for Indigenous Justice, that information is, quote, corrected. So we have it. And of course, like in the let's say, for example, state records, it would still be listed as suicide. But for us, we know our own truths. And that would be considered a homicide in our database, for example. Um, There's lots of other examples like that. You know, this began, this work began because there was missing information that wasn't able to be pulled from law enforcement or from the state because no one was tracking. And that was just, you know, not too long ago in 2018 when we um, wanted to do that poll. And so we started just listening to our families and our communities who came forward and shared the names of their loved ones. And we started just, you know, literally writing it down. And then it became a whole database and Indigenous people tracking their own information makes a big difference, right? And for so long up until that point, people knew this was happening, but we couldn't point to any information and say it was true. 
right? Data is powerful in that way. Um, and so once we started having our own information saying, hey, this is really happening, now we see the movement and now we see the actions being taken and awareness, um, you know, across Alaska and in the lower 48 in Canada, you know, other places too. But data is really powerful in that way to be able to say, hey, this is really happening because unfortunately for so long, us just speaking our truth was not enough. And can you tell us about the allocation or the resulting allocation. So as you talk about the importance and the power of accurate data and once communities are armed with accurate data, what does that power then turn into? What changes have you seen? What allocations have you been able to procure as a result of the truth and the accuracy of the data for Indigenous justice? Yeah, so this has been, of course, a labor over time with many partners. And I also want to acknowledge that Data for Indigenous Justice works closely with other Indigenous-led nonprofits. Um, and together, you know, we were able to use this information. And it was slow at first. We put, you know, at first it was like a city resolution or a city recognition, you know, something without any actionable follow-up. But it was recognition. And that means a lot to begin with, right? Raising awareness matters a lot. And also... You know, I say this too, marches and rallies matter because it draws attention to people in decision-making power to know that people know what's happening, right? So that's also important. Um, but the data then directly informed things like local resolutions and cities and communities. Um, and then it, you know, grew a little bit bigger and there was a proclamation from the governor here in Alaska. And that was also a big deal, right? Because when elected officials or governments recognize um, an issue, then it starts to hold accountability. If we are able to say, yes, this is happening, then the next question is, you know, what next and how do we resolve this? And so then, you know, we had a governor's proclamation. And then more recently, um, what you'll see in Alaska legislature is there's been some bills that have been put forward. And one of them um, directly having the information for the Department of Public Safety here in Alaska you know, we met with the commissioner and the first meeting with him, he said, I didn't know this was such an issue until I saw the data. And from there on in the Department of Public Safety, they put more resources into having specific MMIP, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons Investigators. So because we had that information, we we're able to have two investigators. And then now we have four, right? And we just heard testimony from the commissioner, like he could have two more and keep them busy, you know? Um, and so it directly informed having resources and allocations for investigations to be picked up again, cold cases to be picked up again um, here in Alaska through the Department of Public Safety. There's still a lot more work to be done with local police departments across the state. Um, but again, like building off of what information we have at hand to make those decisions you can see direct outputs from it and that we have legislation bills. So there's a couple regarding securing um, public safety positions. And there's also some around data, which would ensure the longevity of having dependable, accurate information going forward. When you talked about earlier the power as well of the rallies and marches or the import of them um, so that those in decision making capacities can become aware and then you mentioned a, a, an administrator later who said, you know, I, I, I wasn't aware. Now I know. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about the difference between ignorance and willful turning away and whether you have encountered challenges that have been perhaps baked into society or, or what those challenges might look like if there's a persuasion not of of presenting data in its first form, but persuasion of paying attention to an issue that was known about, but was just trying to be ignored? Yeah, lack of political will. I mean, that comes up a lot. And, you know, I think there's a lot of work to be done still with lots of different law enforcement agencies, you know, the attorney general's office. And part of me calling out and like saying that there's these opportunities or lack of political will, for example, um, you know, we we know that this is a complex issue. We know that there's racism is very alive. We know that there's um, many layers and layers. Um, there's historical colonization. You know, there's many things that impact 
and that led us to where we are at today. And the flip side of that, that I try to be hopeful, and um, is that I do believe that everyone can be a part of the solution. So there's a lot of accountability to be had. And, you know, when we present it as a way to partner and a way to come together as a state, as a community, um, I think it's a lot more engaging for people. So yes, we need to hold folks accountable and we want to be partners and be able to work on it together, right? Local people know their own solutions to the issues and that needs to be at the forefront of decision-making. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, I think it's taken a long time because I remember, you know, at first when I had this data, you know, I was like, who, you know, and I was like trying to find where to put it, you know, before I, before Data for Indigenous Justice was founded, I was thinking, okay, maybe an org wants to do this. And at the time it was too hot of an issue, like no one would talk about it. And so that's why we found it was like, okay, well, we know that this information is so essential and important, and it can create action and inform the way we build this movement. You know, but at the time, people weren't weren't willing to even meet with me, they wouldn't reply to emails, you know, but then again, as we just move forward, knowing our truth, knowing our stories, knowing um, that we can't just, you know, just because people aren't willing to meet with us doesn't stop us. Um, and people held rallies. So many communities and families have done walks and raised awareness. You know, that's where, again, that's where all pieces matter. And I think people were, again, it had to grow over time um, before that political will started to change. And there's still so much more to do. Um, but I really do try to send the message that there's a place for everyone to be a part of the solution. Can you share uh, some of the data specifically either the the gap data, the discrepancy, or some of mm -hmm. the data that you have uncovered? Yes. Yeah. So again, we started tracking and putting this together in 2018. Um, we found it in 2020. And in 2021, we put out the first Alaska-specific report. Um, it's online. It's called We Are Calling to You. And that first report put out a figure of 229 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Um, and that was huge. It was the first time we had our own report, um, you know, and there was similar efforts happening through Urban Indian Health Institute, Sovereign Bodies Institute, and we were running our data back and forth, right? And we could see that simply by tracking, um, by us keeping track, like, there are so many cases. We went from, I think in 2018, there were 52 that had been documented by Urban Indian Health Institute. And by 2021, we had tracked 229. And today, right, just a few years later, we have over a thousand cases in our database today. And so there's a lot of questions that people ask about this information. It's like, whoa, is, you know, what happened? How, you know, and Yes, it continues to happen today, right? We know that it's ongoing, but it doesn't mean that all of those cases just happened in that short amount of time. It means that we were able to document that many cases in that amount of time. Some of that documentation happened because of digitized data that used to not be digitized. Some of it happened yeah. because we know um, our own community members. So for example, race and ethnicity boxes in various databases were not being checked correctly for lots of reasons. And when we know our own community members, we're able to then again, go back and quote, correct that. So race, race and ethnicity was a big one, or if someone has a multi-heritage and it gets checked as other, we lose that indigeneity um, identity. And so again, that was another area for race ethnicity um, that we're able to track and capture as well as location. That's one that's ongoing. This is a field I get asked a lot of questions about. Um, home communities often want to know their own numbers for their own advocacy, and that's what we're trying to work on and support. And so they'll ask me, okay, what do you have for my community? And, you know, we have really small communities up here in Alaska. Um, but what happens in state and law enforcement records, for example, you know, by no fault of their own, but they track based on where either the incident happened and then the paperwork gets filed in the nearest hub or the nearest city. So we have small villages, and if something happens, all that paperwork just ends up being hubbed in a larger community. And so what happens is that community, then that smaller one, specifically won't have its own data or information available. So that's another um, 
you know, big varying thing. So a small community might be highly impacted, but not be able to report it or see it in data systems. The other one that we worked on recently was, uh, you know, letting law enforcement know and, you know, the case classification. So with missing persons. So for example, if missing person was out hiking (laughs) and they got lost and we know that they're missing and they didn't come home, that's very different than someone that we suspect maybe got abducted, um, you know, and could be lead to like a homicide, right? And so, but at the time, all of those cases were being classified as a missing category in one data system, in one category. And more recently, we saw um, just at the end of 2023, Department of Public Safety started putting out missing persons reports for Indigenous people, and they expanded their missing categories um, based on recommendations such as that. And so now there's four different categories of the types of ways that people unfortunately go missing. Um, So kind of just line by line, you can see many ways that we don't get reflected within data systems. And again, we're trying to make sure that we are seen, that we're heard, and that there's accountability built into having us reflected um, in those data systems, because unfortunately, we see a lot of disproportionality. Can I ask if the Savannah's Act of 2020 helped? We, we talk about the digitization of information or the increase in communication between agencies or, or the support. Did you see an uptick after Savannah's law or so the Savannah's Act was passed in 2020, which was named after Savannah LaFontaine Greywind. Has have you seen a benefit from that? So I I want to give a shout out to um, our Alaska MMIP federal coordinator Ingrid Cumberledge uh, Goodyear, and so for Alaska at least here um, she really coordinates and conti- she still does um, she coordinated the efforts around Savannah's Act up here and what that could look like, and um, you know our organization other partners and tribal leadership. Uh, met and really gave a lot of feedback to what that could look like here in Alaska. And so there are some areas of data, of course, that came up in Savannah's Act and the Not Invisible Act. And those are, you know, I'll speak honestly, those are recommendations. So there isn't a mechanism that will say, hey, if (laughs) agencies don't do these things, there's no follow-up, right? They are they simply are recommendations. I mean, strong recommendations from the federal government, but still, um, right, there isn't, there isn't teeth behind that, so to say. Um, and I do think that having interagency coordination and cooperation did help lead to things like the four categories through DPS being updated, right? That was on you know, through lots of advocacy from organizations like myself. And, you know, they still, right, it was still up to them to choose to do that or not. And they did. Um, So, I mean, yes, I do think that there's been um, some small wins. I think there's a lot more to do. And I think that, again, maybe making sure like the people who have been behind some of the changes are, are the ones being truly recognized. Right. Um, what should Indigenous communities do if they know someone who's been made a victim? Or we, what can families and loved ones do if they've been afflicted by crimes? What resources essentially would you like to highlight here where people can learn more, support, and also go to if they've been affected by these just staggering statistics? Yeah, sure. So there's um, a lot depending on where people and families are at. So there's a lot of families, of course, sadly, who have lost loved ones um, already and are trying to get their cases revisited, reopened, you know, things like that. And so we do have investigators now through DPS. um, If, you know, sometimes um, those are able to be picked up based on uh, lots of considerations that they're trying to... um, revisit cases like that. There is also direct family services through some of our partners like the Alaska Native Justice Center. There's a really amazing organization here as well called Victims for Justice, and they help families um, who have been victims of homicide with resources um, and, you know, providing them legal direction or um, family services, things like that, grief 
grief circles. So there are some direct services for families. Um, a lot of the tribal health organizations also have some types of support, um, grief and loss and things like that. And then for advocacy, we always tell, you know, families and communities, you know, we just want to support wherever you are at. So some communities are at the point where they're just trying to still do their walks and raise awareness. Some communities want the language for the resolution that passed so they can use it in their city. Um, and we want to share that with them. Um, some communities are, are hoping to have their own data. And that's something that DIJ really wants to help support is, you know, making sure that tribal communities have their own information to have self-determined change and to self-determine what that looks like for their community, you know, so we can work with um, communities and trying to capture that data um, depending on what they need it for. Maybe they need it for federal grants. Maybe they just need it um, to work with their local law enforcement. You know, maybe it is to advocate that they need law enforcement. You know, everyone's at different places. And so we just want to meet people where they're at. Um, but it can look like lots of different things. But there's a lot of resources out there. There's a community toolkit that the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center made as well um, that I think is really useful. And then, of course, we have like different reports um, through DIJ, Urban Indian Health Institute. You know, there's available statistics also if people are needing that information to advocate. And we highlighted the case of Florence Flo Okpialuk, who is missing and assumed murdered since August 31st, 2020 out of Nome, Alaska. And we had the honor of speaking with um, two of her family members, her mother and her sister, um, as well as one of the community members. And I wanted to ask for your thoughts on that particular case, as it it really is, it's heartbreaking and it represents um, just one of these now over a thousand stories where it's it's a miscategorization. It's, um, you know, allegations of underfunded, you know, lack of attention placed on it by authorities and the like. And it just it's so emblematic of the unfortunate reality that is that is changing, but that um, many face currently. Yeah, I, you know, I just want to, as always, you know, lift lift up directly the voices and the stories from the families. I think that that's um, the best way to make changes, listening directly from those experiences and losses. Um, and that also, you know, it's really close to home. I'm from that region and have a lot of family and friends and know men know that case. And I think just one of the things we're seeing is, you know, Unfortunately, the community of Nome has seen a lot of injustice related to domestic violence, sexual assault, homicide, missing persons. And um, just a few years ago, because brave survivors were able to speak up and share their stories, you know, the Nome Police Department ended up being sued because of the lack of investigations that were happening when people were reporting um, these these things happening. And so it is an unfortunate case that highlights many systemic issues. Um, and we know that, again, it's because families are speaking up that change is happening. And I know, unfortunately, justice is, there's a lot of justice to be realized. Um, and I just encourage families to stay strong and to keep sharing their stories of their loved ones. And um, because that is how we're able to be here today and advocate is because of their voices. It's because they spoke up and they're keeping the memory of their loved ones alive. Um, and that's really powerful too. Like, you know, that's another thing I think it's worth saying is that so many times families sadly have to share about the death of their loved ones and able to be heard, um, but really inquiring further about the life of their loved ones and how they lived so that we're operating off of like a legacy of love, right? Um, and so I think that that's important as well to help build a, a better reflective narrative that families are doing this from a place of love, right? And that um, we need to hear those stories and voices and that that's the power behind this is love. It isn't hatred. It isn't systemic issues. It isn't oppression, right? The force behind this is because we have a great love for our people and we have a great love for our family members that we've lost. And that really is what um, keeps many people going. And I just like, you know, want to support and uplift all of that um, for families who have come forward, like Flo's family. And as we talk about 
as you said, there's a lot of justice to be realized. Um, you have highlighted a lot of different supporting organizations and nonprofits. Um, I'd like to end in whatever way you see fit, whatever final message you would like to share, but underscoring specific action items that we can lay out for listeners to do. How should they talk to their reps? How can they talk to their reps? What messaging can they amplify? Where can they go to be a part of the solution and um, really help harness this power of love, as you said? Yeah, so there is a working group. It's called MMIWG2S Alaska. We have a Facebook page and a website. And currently, we actually just got back um, last week from Juneau. We were educating uh, the Alaska legislator on this issue. And so there's three current bills in the legislator um, that address MMIW, things like cultural training, things like having uh, the MMIP investigators, things like securing data. Um, and so folks should check that out, look at the bills, write the representatives, call them. Um, there's opportunity for testimony coming up as well. So if those are things that people are able to do, we have information on our socials and website for that. Um, and then again, we also share resources like the community toolkit. You can get on our newsletter and follow us for future events. Um, we do things around May 5th and all through the year, actually. Um, and so it's a good way to stay engaged. But yeah, check out the Facebook page and our website and um, see the see the bills that are currently there. And please, please, please contact your representatives. Thank you so much, Charlene Apuk. Thank you. I'm so grateful um, for this time today. And especially given that in your busy schedule of advocating and educating, just that you've taken this time out to educate us and to help spread this word. We are always here to be an amplifier for information. And so please know that you can come back anytime. We welcome you uh, with any update or, or with any information that you would like to share. That's exactly what this platform is, is carrying other stories and messages to be forces for good. And we're grateful for your advocacy and all the representation that you encompass. Thank you. Quiana, thank you so much for having me. And again, you know, I'm just one person of many <laughs> doing this work. And um, there's just amazing partners. We partner, the working group is made up of the Alaska Native Heritage Center, the Alaska Native Justice Center, the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center, Data for Indigenous Justice and Native Movement, all Indigenous-led organizations. So there's um, just phenomenal people working on this with a lot of heart. And I'm I'm grateful to be able to share today for for my team. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.